chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we give thanks to God for these public readings of his infallible and inerrant word. You know, the last, uh, twice I was here, we looked at uh, Colossians, and we come, uh, come back to Colossians this morning and again this evening. Now, when we read the epistles, we must always remember that they're letters. They didn't come as a book with a certain number of chapters. There were no chapter divisions in the original Greek. And it is unfortunate that in the flow of the argument at the end of chapter 1 is interrupted by this uh, chapter division. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is a clear continuation of the thought of chapter 1, and particularly verse 29. Paul was very concerned for the church in Colossae and indeed for all the churches in the Lycus Valley. And he wants to warn them of the very real danger of false teaching. There were two types of false teaching that were prevalent in the church in Colossae. One was the Gnostic heresy, which was briefly people saying that having Christ was fair enough, but you needed more. You needed a deeper kind of wisdom that only they could provide. You needed a certain number of passwords and steps that you went through. That was one of them. But there was also the Judaizing heresy, there were some converted Jews who wanted to tell the believers in Colossae that in order to be a Christian, you needed first of all to become a Jew. So it was necessary for these Gentiles living in Colossae to become Jews and then to become Christians. So Paul is trying to deal with these false teachings and put the believers on a proper footing. 
Now, the apostle speaks of his struggle. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And this word comes from the same root as striving in verse 29 of chapter 1. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. And then I want you, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He struggled for them by providing ammunition for them against false teachers. He struggles for them by clearly setting out the truth of the gospel and his constant prayer for them. His struggles on their behalf took place within his own heart in his anxiety, sympathy and intercession for them. Paul demonstrates here a great generosity of heart and spirit. It is unlikely that he had personal knowledge of many of the believers. Indeed, we're not entirely sure whether he had personal knowledge of any of them. Nevertheless, he specifically mentions those who did not personally know him as the object of his concern and prayer. Now, this demonstrates the heart of the man and woman of God. He loves the believers for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not rely upon his own knowledge of them or his, his love of them to stimulate or encourage his concern for them. He loves them, he cares for them, he wants to help them, not because he knows them, but because they belong to Christ, because they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is a great lesson for believers here. There is a great responsibility placed upon the believer to be concerned for and to pray for fellow believers. Not just those that belong to our own denomination, not just those that we know personally. There are many differing congregations and denominations, but there is only one church of Jesus Christ. We pray for believers. And may I say that those of us who live in this kind of environment, where we can open our doors every week, we can come in freely, nobody will attempt to prevent us from coming in. Nobody will say anything about us coming into a place of worship. We should especially remember and pray for believers who do not have this luxury, this freedom. So let's have a look at these verses in Colossians chapter 2. And the first thing that we see is the desire 
that Paul had for the church, the desire that Paul had for the church. And when Paul states his own desire for for these Christians, he is simply setting out what God desires for all Christians. Now, he, he desires four things for them. First of all, the strengthening of their hearts. Now, the heart in Scripture is more than just the seat of the emotions. It refers principally to the whole inward personality, including thoughts and will, as well as emotion. Genesis 6 and verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 17, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Paul prays that they may have a strengthened heart. The Christians in Colossae were being, were being called on to fight and to resist doctrinal and practical errors. And for that, they would need strength. They would need the strength of will. They would need the strength of mind. They would need the strength of heart. They would need to be strong in the Lord. Because many of these doctrines that came to them seemed to be very attractive. They seemed to be the kind of things that, that if you were intelligent, these were the kind of things that you'd want to know. And so they needed to be strong in their heart, in their mind, and Paul prays for that. The second thing he prays for is the binding together in love. This is love in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus a love for truth. There would be little hope of false teachers gaining ground with the church if true believers were bound together in love for Christ, love for his truth, and love for one another. If we love Christ, we must love his truth. And where do we find his truth? We find his truth in the word of God. We must always be like the Bereans, who even when Paul was preaching to them, searched the scriptures to see whether the things that he was saying were true. And you must do that, always. When your minister stands up here 
our minister, I should say, when our minister stands up here week by week to preach the word of God, don't take it from him because he's the minister. Don't take it from him because he's very knowledgeable. Take it because it's from the word of God. It's because of what the word of God says. We will never be moved away from Christ if we have a love and dependence upon his truth. So he prays for the strengthening of their hearts. He prays for their binding together in love. And he prays, thirdly, for the assurance of the truth. It leads, it leads on from the, 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 the previous point. One of the greatest riches for the believing saint is to be firmly convinced of the truth and not to be swayed from that conviction, no matter how plausible the arguments may be. You see, for the believers in Colossae, the Colossian heresy was, look, we're not trying to turn you away from Christ. What we want to give to you is a deeper knowledge, a greater knowledge of Christ. But in order to do that, you need to go through these steps. You need to go along this pathway. And that way, you will know more of Christ. And Paul says, you need the truth. The only way to combat these teachings was through a firm conviction that what they had been taught by the apostles was absolutely true. And then he prays for the knowledge of the mystery of God. And Paul uses the term mystery to indicate a truth that would have been hidden forever had God not revealed it. Paul desires that the believers might know Christ. For in him, is what he says, in him, all wisdom and knowledge are to be found. We don't need to go outside of Christ to find wisdom and truth. For everything that we need to know, we find in Christ. In him, all wisdom and knowledge are to be found. These glorious, life-giving, life-preserving truths are hidden from the ungodly, but wonderfully revealed to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about those four things that Paul prays for. Compare those four things with what we pray for. We so often pray for physical health and strength, and there's nothing wrong with that. We pray for material things. We so seldom listen in the next prayer meeting that you're in. Do we pray that the hearts of believers may be strengthened, that they might be bound together in love, that they might have a profound and deep knowledge of the truth, and that they might know the mysteries of God, that they might know Christ. You remember that cry of Paul when he says, Oh, that I might know him. 
Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his image. So that's the desire that Paul had for the church. The second thing that we notice in this passage is the deception that Paul warns against. The deception that Paul warns against. In writing this letter to the church, Paul was very concerned that the professing believers in Colossae might be deceived by this false teaching that was taking place, and he wanted to guard and protect them. It would seem that in the church in Colossae, there were already false teachers at work amongst them, quite possibly not from within the congregation itself, but more likely itinerant preachers going from place to place, spreading this false teaching. And it's interesting to note that they were being warned about not being deceived. It is not that they were so unsound in the truth that they would run after any false teaching that came along, but rather that little by little they would be induced to accept new truth because it sounded plausible and spiritual. And we must never forget what we read in 2 Corinthians 11, that the devil himself is transformed into an angel of light. And Paul believed that the best way to protect the believers against this false teaching was to direct their mind and their hearts to Christ. Someone who is firmly convinced that all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge are to be found in Christ, they will not go anywhere else looking for it. I know there are some people who, some theologians, who dedicate their lives to learning about new twists on doctrine so that they might be able to combat them. But I would suggest that for the majority of Christian people, they should stay far away from these false teachings. There are those who will combat them, but it is safer, surely, to make sure that we know the truth. There's a lot of error out there. There's a lot of error in professing Christian circles. There's a lot of error in supposedly reformed circles that will bring us little by little away from the truth that we have learned from the Scripture. It is better, far better, that we are totally ignorant of the falsehoods that are being spread, that we might know the truth. We thank God for those to whom he has given the skill and the wisdom and the understanding to be able to go into these things and then to combat them. But for most Christian people, what we need to know is the truth. We need to know the truth of the word. So Paul warns them 
about being deceived. The third thing that we see is the devotion that Paul commends. The devotion that Paul commends. Paul's concern for the church, and he was concerned for them, didn't blind him to the positive things that were going on in the congregation. There was unity in the fellowship. He praises their order. And that's a very interesting word. It could be replaced by discipline. He praises their order or discipline, and it's a word that comes from the Roman army. And the success of the Roman army was their discipline, the way that they were united together as they attacked or as they defended. And it was their discipline and their unity that made them so formidable. And so Paul looks at the congregation of, of what is heard of, Col- of the church in Colossae, and he praises their unity. He praises their togetherness. He pra- praises their order and their discipline. And isn't that what we should strive for in this congregation? Unity? That we should be of one mind, of one heart, that we should love the Lord with heart and soul and mind and strength, and we should love our brothers and sisters as ourselves. He praises the unity in the fellowship. But he is also encouraged by their steadfast faith. In spite of the challenges that faced them, Paul was encouraged because they were established on a solid foundation in Christ. The exhortation in verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He urges the believers to live in accordance with the profession of faith that they had made. Now, if you're a member of this congregation, you have made a profession of faith. I wonder, I wonder how we walk in accordance with that profession that we have made. True believers have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this points to the fullness and completeness of the salvation that they have received. This again shows to the Christians the foolishness of listening to false teachers who were telling them that something else was needed. He says, you have received everything in Christ. Everything you need, you have in Christ. And then he goes on and he tells them that that there are four things, four phrases that describe the Christian walk. First of all, he tells them that they have been firmly rooted. 
And that speaks of being firmly, securely planted in Christ. And the tense that is used here indicates that it was an act done once for all that has continuing effects. It's an act done once for all. They believed in Christ. They were born again. That was an act done once. Their lives were changed. They came from darkness to light. They became, they changed from being enemies of God to being friends of God. But that action done once has continuing effects. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Somebody who truly is rooted in Christ by saving faith will show in his life that he has a continuing relationship with Christ. That's where the difficulty arises, isn't it? It's very easy for us to say, and many people can give you the day and the hour when they were born again. I can't. But many people can. And that's good. But it's not enough. This is an act done once that has continuing effects in the lives. Do the people you live next to see in you that you are a believer in Christ? Not necessarily by what you say, but by what you do. Do the people you work with know that there is something different about you because you are a believer in Christ Jesus? Think of it this way. If the Lord Jesus Christ was to walk into your workplace, would people know that there was something different about him? Well, if they would notice that there was something different about Christ himself, then if Christ dwells in you, then they should see that difference in you. That's the first, the first phrase they had been firmly rooted. The second phrase is being built up in him. And this has the picture of a tall building that is slowly getting taller and taller and taller. Perhaps in our, in our culture here, maybe the better illustration would be these huge bonfires that are being built around the 12th of July, uh, when you see them, first of all, just a few pallets on the ground, and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And this speaks of the ongoing work of sanctification in the life of the believer. The Christian who is walking in Christ should be becoming more Christ-like day by day. This is something that causes me, I confess, great anxiety. I ask myself the question, 
Am I more Christ-like now than I was when I first came to know Christ? Do I have a better knowledge of his word than I did this time last year? Do I hate sin more now than I did two years ago? Has there been any growth or development in my life? You see, if we walk in Christ, if we are being built up in him, it's an ongoing process. This building will never be finished while we're here on earth. Whilst we remain on this earth, this construction process will continue as we are being built up in holiness. And the third phrase it speaks of, again, something continuous, becoming more and more established in the faith. A mature Christian will have an ever firmer grip on eternal realities and a deeper assurance of the truth as it is in Jesus. And yet, I worry that sometimes, sometimes it seems to be the opposite. As I look back on my life, I think perhaps I was more firmly convinced when I first came to Christ. Because the change was so dramatic and so different that I had a greater appreciation of eternal realities then than I do now. I fear sometimes that I may be going backwards rather than forwards. And so Paul wants these believers to become more firmly established in the truth. And finally, Paul speaks of that continuing thankfulness that should be a noticeable part of the life of the Christian. A proper and growing thankfulness to God will inevitably lead to a spirit of praise that will show itself in a ready obedience to his word and to the will of God. Thankfulness. Do we not see in our society a great level of discontent? People are not satisfied with what they have. They always want more, more and more things. The Christian should be content. One of my favorite verses in the scripture And sadly, it's not one that I adhere to as much as I should. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Do we look at what we have and say, I wish I had more? I wish my circumstances were different. I wish... I wasn't getting older, but I am. I wish my body didn't ache as much as it does. But you see, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For as every year passes, it brings me closer to seeing Christ in glory. And that should bring great rejoicing and thanksgiving to God. My cry should be that of the Apostle John. Even so come, Lord Jesus. But whilst we remain here on this earth, we should be truly thankful to the Lord for all that he has done for us. And we should be one who gives him glad and ready and eager service to the Lord and to his people. So Paul says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. May God enable us to do that to his glory.